anyone can do this in any situation, in any room, in any meeting. Hold on a second. What are we in service to? Nice. Beautiful. How do we operationalize empathy? How do we normalize vulnerability? Let's not get backlogs and burn down charts. Let's have the conversation now. Let's facilitate what is in the moment as the most important thing. The definition of a relationship is actually from Daniel Siegel's work, to know and to be known. Oh, look at that. Right? Are you listening to win? Are you listening to learn? Are you listening to understand? Wow. I know. Sinead Condon. To me, to belong means to feel that I'm a part of something, to feel that my contribution matters, and that together, within community, we can accomplish something great. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be here. I'm super excited. Amazing. Thank you for having me. You you talk about self-advocacy being a dirty word. Yeah. You talk about resiliency being a dirty word. And yet, how do we hold these words in ways that reflect where I am in the moment? Yeah. And how is that influencing my choice? Because if I am coming through three years of a pandemic, if I am experiencing layoffs, whether I'm the impacted or the retained population, if I'm, in, you know, experiencing my personal traumas, my, my, my personal life is, is, you know, going to shite, right? Like whatever that is, how do I get held in my experience in an organization where I am really encouraged yeah. to engage, yes, to perform. That's right. To accomplish and execute this really long list that are my OKRs, that are my goals. And where's the authenticity yeah. in all of that? Well, there's a lot in there. Let's let I'm gonna unpack that a little bit. So I want to go back to something you said there at the beginning, um, because it's a term that I use, this kind of dirty word idea, right? And, and and I do think, you know, I'm going to add a couple to the list, right? So self-advocacy, dirty word, um, uh, resiliency, transformation, transforming, empowerment. There is my most favorite or least favorite dirty word. Um, and why do I call them dirty words? Because in reality, I have tremendous amount of compassion and empathy for all of them and, and what they actually mean. Mm. The reason that I say that they're dirty words is because they are so misunderstood. I call them suitcase terms, right? Whoa. Is that you, you know, think of a, a suitcase that's packed with lots of stuff in there and you pull something out and, you know, it means something else you know, to, to any number of people. They're highly subjective terms. And so with self-advocacy, the reason that self-advocacy has become such a dirty word for me is because we do have a tendency to push people to say, self-advocate. You want to change it? Go self-advocate. 
and it can be so hard for people. Yes. You know, if you are, um, if you're introverted, if you're quiet, if you are not a native English speaker working in a, a corporation that is, you know, sitting in the U.S., um, re regardless of wherever you are, it can be really hard for people. Yeah. And I want to really acknowledge that first and foremost, yes. that it is okay to, to say, that's really hard. I don't know how to do that. I don't even want to do that. Right. I don't even know where to start if I was to even try. And what I invite people to do, rather than say, invite or encourage to self-advocate, mm. I invite and encourage every single person to take a moment to think about what values you hold true for yourself. What is most important to you? What is least important to you? What is it that creates value for you um, in work, in your personal life? And the reason that to me that it's important to have clarity around your own personal value system is because it's impossible, my sense-making tells me, it's impossible to self-advocate. What are you advocating for? You can't advocate for yourself if you don't know what yourself is. Nice. Right? So you have to, first of all, think about who am I? Who do I want to be? How do I want to show up to the world? What is it that is important for me, my judgments, my biases, my opinions, my, my actions, the way I make decisions, the way I collaborate with people, all of those things we, I, I, I invite people to center themselves to. Mm -hmm. um, because then, and only then to me, can you stand tall, put your shoulders back, have the confidence to say, this is what I believe in. and. That to me is what self-advocacy is about. And there's an empowerment element. And, and I actually was just talking to some folks the other day about this. Empowerment is also, I, I think I mentioned a bit of a dirty word, because empowerment, what does that mean? It means to have power to change or influence something. Um, but it requires, it requires accountability. It requires authority. It requires the information and the resources to be able to feel that you have the power to do something. Um, and so, and I'll get to the resiliency part in a minute because, okay, so if we break it down, to self-advocate means to first know your value system and what you believe in. Then to feel that you're empowered in that value system means that you feel that you have some ownership and accountability and that in that accountability and ownership, you have the authority to make decisions and influence the direction or path of something, and that you have the necessary information to, in the context of that, to be able to keep moving forward, then you are beginning to surround yourself with the tools and the data points that you need to even think about having some resilience towards that. Wow. Right? So this is to me about how do we arm ourselves and equip ourselves with the tools that we need. Um, and we do have to seek those out or at least at the very least surround ourselves with people that can help us get there. So this is 
phenomenal. When you talk about creating ecosystems where individuals can thrive, is this what you're talking about? Yes, it is. um, Because, you know, I I always say, um, when you walk into an organization, you have signed a contract. Mm. And I don't mean the offer letter. I mean, you have leaned in, as has the company. And you've met in the middle and said, we have a working agreement together that we are both going to show up and bring our best selves. That's incredible. And we owe it to ourselves. The company owes it to us to find that sweet spot on how we are going to thrive together in the ecosystem that we are creating. And the self-advocacy part is to lean into that and to say, what is that working agreement? And I think that's where it can get a little messy. Um, And I encourage, when we talk about the ecosystem, I encourage every single person to find ways even if they, you know, have a support system around you, but find ways to get clarity around that working agreement. Sure, there was a job description. Sure, you have these tools in your back pocket. Sure, you know, you came in and you interviewed and you checked all the boxes and they checked all the boxes for you. But there is an unwritten part often in that working agreement, which is what I'm talking about, like extending beyond the job description and the offer letter to how do I want to be treated? Yeah. How am I going to treat others? Exactly. Um, How am I going to create relationships and build upon those relationships so that I can be my best self and I can help create best selves in others? Wow. How, as the head of people at Guidewire, do you uphold that every single day? One of the most important things for me as a human being is the relationships that I have with the people around me. And if I go back to kind of the value system part, when we come into ecosystems where we are unknown. Oftentimes, as we start to build relationships, there is somewhat of a veneer attached to them that we build relationships based on what we do, the decisions that we make, the authority that we have. But are we building relationships based on who we are as people? Are we building wow. relationships based on the experiences that we've had that have made us who we are? The answer to that is probably no. Right. Because, and I get it, right? We are, you know, there's a lot, there's lots to get done. Often you're in a hustle mode and you're trying to build agility into the organization. You're trying to build operational excellence and, and all of those things are really, really important. Uh, but if we could go that step further and start to think about these worldviews that we all have, um, 
which really is what makes up our value system, is our worldviews, how we think about the world purely because of the way we've been brought up and the experiences that we've had. Uh, but I I like to kind of, when I, when I describe it, and for your listeners, uh, close your eyes for a moment, you know, think of the palm of your hand, you've got five fingers, you have judgments, opinions, biases, beliefs, and actions, and values that are your imprint of who you are. But if I take my hand and I put the palm of my hand up against my chest, whereby my value system is hidden, nobody knows who I am unless I share that. And so it is incumbent upon me if I really, truly want to build authentic relationships and be intentional about it, that I can share some of that with others to deepen those relationships, to deepen the values, um, the understanding of those values, and to give people clarity. Because it helps people to understand why I make decisions the way I do. Um, why it's important to me that I have various perspectives in the room so that I not just make the a decision, but I make the right decision. And having the intentionality to bring different perspectives, not because they have different jobs, but because they have different worldviews, because they have different value systems that all play an integral part, data points, to making the right decisions. Mm. So profound. I think, you know, what comes up for me are many, many things here. So the first thing that comes up is the definition of a relationship, which is the definition of a relationship is actually from Daniel Siegel's work, um, to know and to be known. Oh, look at that. Right? The second thing that comes up for me is, are we in the moment that we are making a decision choosing to be right or choosing to be in relationship? Right? And then that takes me to, how do we be more? Right. How, how, what does that even look like? What does that even mean? And I want to push back a little bit. What does the right decision even mean? Yeah. When you said that, I was like, oh, when is there a right decision? What does, how do I know? That's a great question. What a right decision is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that you're asking me that question. Um, here's what I think about when I hear you say that. Um, and and in the process of me making decisions in, you know, again, your listeners, you know, we all make decisions every day. And so how do you know what is the right decision? I guess the first thing for me is to ask a very, very important question. And that is, what are you, what are we, what am I in service to? I just, can we just pause there? That this sure. is such an important question. I want to take a deep breath into this. And if you could please generously repeat that question, because sure. that is foundational. Yeah. Yeah. What are we in service to? And the reason that I, in any given day, I probably ask that question 20 or 30 times. Wow. Because it's so easy to get caught up in everything. In all For the sure. minutiae of just everything that's been thrown at us. And 
it is very easy to lose the plot. <laughs> it is. It's very easy to lose the plot. And part of the working agreement of teams working together is, is this idea of holding each other accountable to making sure that we don't lose the plot and to aligning on what is it that we are in service to. And so much, I think, of working in human systems, and by human systems, I mean any place that there are humans running around, working together, making decisions together, being together, doing together, is that um, the dynamics of all of these different value systems coming together can oftentimes derail what we are in service to. It yes. can blur the lines. 100%. Right? It can become very abstract. Um, and to a large extent, oftentimes, because we all have our own agendas, and there's nothing wrong with that. I have an agenda. My remit as a chief people officer is something very specific. Somebody else coming to the table may have an agenda, their remit that's very specific to them. And so we honor and acknowledge what each of us brings and our own individual outcomes that we need to execute on. But when we are collaborating, when we are a collective working together in collaboration, there is an element, and I invite anybody to do this, is to facilitate, lean into facilitating the question. And anyone can do this in any situation, in any room, in any meeting. Hold on a second. What are we in service to? Nice. Beautiful. I want to go back to losing the plot. I love that so much. And holding each other accountable. Yeah. Which, how do we hold each other accountable? Yeah. When you have this beautiful phrase where you say, nobody wants to suck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nobody wants to suck. I, I don't know who like gets up in the morning and says, okay, today, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm going to focus on sucking. Right. That's right. That, that nobody wants to do that. That's right. So then what? Like, how do we honor the sucking moments? Right. And how do we hold each other accountable yeah. in ways that are still upholding yeah. the dignity of the human? Let, let's talk about holding each other accountable for a second, because I'm a big believer in throwing the word assumption. Let's, let's put a visual around it. Take okay. assumption. <laughs> okay. Throw it in a bucket. Okay. Put some oil on it and burn it. <laughs> oh let's my, do that. Oh my God. Right? That's, that's quite vivid. And the reason that I suggest doing that is because we make assumptions all day long yeah. about people and things and the world around us that are completely inaccurate. But isn't this, this, isn't this implicit bias? Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, in the, in the ownership element of this, I want to go back to the kind of the working agreements that I was talking about. And mm -hmm. working agreements, by the way, um, working agreements often called designed alliances. I say to everybody, have working agreements about, about everything. Like put some structure around it. Well, what do you mean by that, Sinead? Um, example of that would be, 
I'm going to start, let's say we're working on a project. We're just starting off a project. We get the team together. First conversation we have is what are we trying to do? What are we in service to? Right? Mm. And then the next thing is throwing out the assumptions. Mm. Now, what's a good example of an assumption going into a project? Oh, Raj Kamari and I worked with each other before in another project. And so I know all the things about Raj Kamari and how she shows up and how the work gets done and how decisions are made and yada, 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 yada. Assumption, 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 assumption. Well, guess what? Let's use COVID as an example. Bear with me a second, because mm -hmm. I know I'm jumping around a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. We all just came out of three years. Are we three, three and a half years at this point? Yep. Right? I am a completely different person three and a half mm. years later. The skills that I have now, the way I think about things, the really leaning into what are we in service to, the um, constant calibration in my brain of what outcomes are we driving, what value are we really trying to create, all of these things are much more intentional for me now. Thankfully, if I was to say there was a silver lining coming out of COVID in that oh, respect, wow. mm. um, I think all of us have come through with new attributes, characteristics of ourselves. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and that's fine. And so when we talk, so how do I pull all of that together? So we come out the other end of that, I'm a different person. I don't want somebody making an assumption of me that I am what I was three years ago. I don't. I am a different person now. And how I show up is different. And so what I look to facilitate going into a project even is taking a moment as we're kicking off to craft a co-created working agreement, mm. which looks like this. Simple questions. How do we want to be when we are together as a team? When it's working really, really well, what does it look like? When it's not working well, how are we all showing up? If it's not working well for me, am I withdrawing? Am I turning my camera off on Zoom? Am I somehow disengaged and it manifests in me in a certain way? You want to create ownership, then we all have to own who we are and how we show up in these moments. But we also have to share them. Mm. We have to talk about them. Yes. Because otherwise, what happens? We all make assumptions about each other, and most of the time they're false. Right. So having the working agreement, being clear collectively. And it can always grow. It can evolve. As you get to know each other, you're halfway down the project. You're learning more things about each other. You're getting into your, you know, you're settling in and you're getting into the flow of things. Maybe you recalibrate the working agreement. This is, this is amazing. So first of all, I can't wait to replay the recording because I need to go back and capture all these questions for myself as I build out I belong and ask myself these questions and the people that I want to, you know, connect and, and, and build teams with. How do I start to recalibrate who I am? 
And how do I start to allow myself to recalibrate who you are? Yeah. Well, you always obviously have to start with yourself. This is very, very true. Right. This so I, I, true. I've, I, uh, let's continue with the example that you used, right? So let's say we've been working together for seven years and all of a sudden we're starting a new project and you already are making all these assumptions about how we've worked together in the past. How do I take ownership to recalibrate who you are and how do I recalibrate who I am? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, first of all, we only have control over ourselves. Fair. Okay. So there is an element of clearly introspection is to take a moment, to take many moments yes. to process and create space to do that introspection. Um, what have I learned about myself? Am I making decisions differently? Am I building relationships differently? I will tell you, actually, coming out of COVID, and I don't know if you know our listeners will resonate with this. I think I make relationships, I build relationships differently now. Oh, say more about that, please. Um, well, I feel I'm more introverted than I Oh, wow. I, I used to be. I would consider myself introverted at the best of times, although my role as a chief people officer sure. has me obviously out in front more and, and talking to people. And I love to do that. But I have, you know, I the energy gets sucked out of me and, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm, I'm, I, I can get exhausted very easily from that because I'm a natural introvert. Um, but I, I am better now at building relationships one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. Not better now. That's not the, the right way to say it. I used to be able to go into a big group of people and not necessarily work the room, but I could go around and like a butterfly and I would talk to everybody and I would build relationships that way. I don't, I don't do that well anymore. I'm not as effective as it, at, at it, probably because I was in the fetal position for three years. Well, not quite, but, but, you know, like it did take its toll on me because none of us were socializing, right? And so I think that muscle atrophied in me. Mm. And, um, and not only did it, did I feel that I had kind of muscle atrophy from it, and because one could say, well, you just have to build that muscle back up. But I actually think I'm I'm a different person now. It's not that I need to exercise the muscle. It's I actually am different. And your values now, have shifted. And my values have shifted. And and I'm more, I think I'm more um attuned to the one-on-one -on -one relationship. I'm like I I I value the the one-on-one -on -one relationship, the connection that I have with individuals more now than I think I did in the past. And I'm actually, as I'm talking about it, your listeners can't, can't maybe some of them can't see me because I have my eyes up to the heavens and I'm thinking about this <laughs> as, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm introspecting on it myself in this moment. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think certainly for me, I'm, I'm very, very different. And I, I guess I invite people to think about what is different in take the time to, 
to invest in yourself and think about how possibly you've changed. And, and you know, one of the things, if I can just digress just for a second, we've been talking a lot in work about, and certainly coming out of COVID, designing intentional teams. Um, and what does it mean to collaborate now? And we're all in hybrid, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that we talked a lot about is acknowledging and honoring all that we've learned in the three years that we've been away from each other. And tactical things like, you know, using mirror boards or Smartsheet or whatever your tool of choice is to reprioritize your work and to have it more visual now and because you're not walking the halls and talking to your manager or your colleagues or whatever it is. And so even getting folks to, um, to look in the mirror and say, good on you. Look at all these tools you learned that accelerated your growth and development because you had to, you had no choice, right? But even taking a moment to recognize and acknowledge that, I think is actually a really, really big deal. Mm -hmm. So that's on the in individual side. The other thing is now that I've kind of individually introspected, um, then to be able to and some people think this is braggy, so we have to kind of get comfortable with this, is to say, you know what? I came out the other end of COVID. I learned these new tools. I kind of show up differently. What about you? Mm. Here's what I've learned about myself. What have you learned about yourself? So this is really interesting. You're normalizing vulnerability. 100%. That, that's what you're advocating here. Yeah. And Yes, 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 yes. That's exactly right. I mean, this one. Thank to take, you for saying that out loud, actually, because I never, never thought about it that way. It, I mean, it's, it's stunningly gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what that is. The the, the question. I mean, I I, I want to go down, you know, so many different tendrils here simultaneously because this brings up so many things for an individual: angst, anxiety, depression, trauma. Ha, ha, attachment theory, right? Avoidance. Ha, ha, if I if I grew up being in, a, in avoidant relationships, how do I even begin to step into vulnerability? Like I don't even know what that even means, and that could even be a threat. Resma Menakem says something so brilliant. It, it just every time I say it, it just hits me in the heart, which is bodies who have been conditioned in violence think safety can be a threat. Same for vulnerability. So as we move toward the future of work, which is here right now, it's here right now, we are in the midst of future at work. How do we operationalize empathy? How do we normalize vulnerability? How do we prioritize being in relationship and mandating to know and to be known as a core value of organizations. You know, it, it's interesting when, when I think about it, oftentimes people ask me this question, like, what kind of programs do you have in work, you know, to operationalize your culture or... Yeah. Um, and I have a little organ rejection to that a little bit. Um, 
an organ rejection. Yeah, I do. My my <laughs> Can heart. I ask your, yeah, your my heart. heart. My heart struggles with it a little bit because. Um, should we talk more? Wow! Like conversations are so. There's there's a vulnerability to conversations yeah. that is just a natural part of just sharing, saying words out loud. And when you programize things, sometimes the art of the conversation gets lost. 100%. And I would love to see, and this is something that I'm so committed to in the work that I do now, is let's have a conversation. Let's come together and have a conversation about it. Let's not get backlogs and burn down charts and, you know, I don't know, a whole bunch of things that are going to take us six months and then we'll come out the other end of the wash cycle and then we have something. And by the time we have it, the conversation has been lost or repurposed or recalibrated into something that is now deemed as more important. Mm -hmm. Let's have the conversation now. Mm -hmm. Let's facilitate what is in the moment as the most important thing. Because as soon as you programize it, or programatize it, whatever the word is, <laughs> <laughs> then you kind of get swept up. And guess what? Halfway through the program, you're saying, what are we in service to? What right, was that again? Because you're prioritizing the doing versus the being. Yes. The conversation gives us the being. Yes. Yes. And it gives us a lot of clarity. Yeah. Because then we come into it with all these things that come to be and are surfaced, and it will help inform us on how we want to move forward, and we should want to move forward. And, and uh, you know, as, as your, you know, your, your listeners are hearing this, I am not saying you shouldn't have programs. I'm not saying that you shouldn't operationalize. Of course, there are things that you want to put in place because you have to, things need to be scalable and you want to make sure that you're, you, you know, in service to all of the right things. And there's an element of, of sure, operationalizing it. But don't get caught up in the operationalizing it as the first thing to do. You have to start with the conversation. And very tactically speaking, how do we do that? Um, oftentimes in, in my work, things surface that are scary or fragile or um, hugely vulnerable for people to talk about. And you want to have, I want to, notice that I'm being very intentional about saying I, because it is my own sense making in this. I like to be intentional about not only creating space to have the conversations, but facilitating the conversation so that we honor it in its most appropriate way. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that might be uh, a, a panel discussion. Sometimes it might be bringing a community of people together and me or someone else facilitating that conversation so we are we make sure to be in service to what we're trying to create together. 
Not that it's kind of willy-nilly and let's just all kind of, you know, just chat, 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 chat. So there has to be the authenticity, the vulnerability and the intentionality has to be there so that you're framing in the context of what it is that you're in service to. And that does need to be facilitated and that you do, I think, need um, people to help with that. Um, So yeah, that's what I would say about just putting clarity around that. One of the things that Meredith Haberfeld, who's the CEO of Think Human, does phenomenally is facilitate conversation. Yeah. Uh, she, she is just mind-blowingly brilliant. I have been in several fishbowls as a participant, as a, you know, a guest, and I always just stare at her because just, just witnessing her, her skill is an art form and the way that she facilitates the conversation, the way that she asks the questions, the way that she pauses and then names what just occurred that allows the depth of the the energy in the room to even go further, you know, in, in, in terms of being grounded. Not everyone has that skill set that Meredith, you know, just really innately exudes. How does one go about learning this? How does one go about reconnecting? In order to facilitate a conversation, there has to be a level of vulnerability. Yes. There has to be a level of willingness to be curious. Yes. There has to be a willingness to be in a place of uncertainty and in flow. And if I am so busy doing and executing and making sure that all my data is lined up and all my ducks are in a row, how do I learn this? Um, curiosity, obviously, is a big part of that. I, I was reading something the other day, and unfortunately, I can't remember the source, so you'll have to forgive me. But um, it was, are you listening to win? Are you listening to learn? Are you listening to understand? And. Wow. I know. The first one, are you listening? Okay. The, yeah. Are you listening to win? Yeah. Are you listening to learn or are you listening to understand? And I would even like to, to add, are you listening to know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And oh, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And so when I, when I first read the listening to win, I was like, oh my gosh. <sighs> and, and what that can look like sometimes I think, and it's so funny because, you know, sometimes when I'm um, doing some session on, you know, uh, coaching skills or something mm-hmm. right, with managers or mm-hmm. whomever, and I, I go in and I say, okay, how many people here like to solve problems? And everybody, everybody puts up their hand, right? And my great that's fantastic. Of course, we all want to solve problems and uh, we're hired to solve problems. But are you, when you are wearing your coaching hat, when you're leaning into coaching others, are you listening so that you can solve their problem? Are you listening to create space and to understand and be curious, knowing that you are in service to helping them to solve the problem themselves? And I when I read listening to win, there's kind of a winning element to that. It's like, oh my god, I know this one. I know the answer. You know, right. somebody's somebody saying to you, I have a problem. I, I, I let me. I can help you. I know. Okay, let me. You know, and and that's a kind of a listening to win mentality right there. Right, one hundred percent. And uh, 
And so facilitating, right? So let's think about facile to make easy is a Latin word to make easy. Um, that's that's what this is, right? Facilitative leadership, which I'm a massive supporter of, um, is one's ability to lean in or lean out appropriately um, in service to the outcome, of course, we talked about, but being when you lead with curiosity and the willingness to understand, learn, and know, then the rest will come. Yeah. The rest will come. You create that space and wonderful things happen. And I think there's a recognition. And, you know, when you think about companies, you know, all going, everybody, we're all going through transformation right now. Transformation. Like, gosh, that's another dirty word. Transformation. Why is it dirty? It's highly subjective. It means different things to different people. But it's fundamentally about creating space to let change happen, to evolve into something, to shift into something else, um, continuously improve. I'd love to actually share, you know, what Spiral Dynamics is. I think that has kind of lost its traction over the last few years in a really big way. I know that... um, uh, reinventing organizations by Fred- Frederick Lelou was the you know, the author of that book. Uh, really fascinating, fascinating book. But before we go there, I want to come back to facilitation. Yeah, being versus doing yes. is such a huge pillar or tenet of facilitating masterfully to kind of allow yourself to be ensconced in the moment, in what's being said, in the room, in the space, whatever it is, rather than solving to win. Right. Talk more about that. Yeah. Well, um, and then and then and then talk. Maybe tie it back to the teal organizations and, oh, and gosh. spiral dynamics. Well, you know my my journey to spiral dynamics, which um, and people can can Google it as well, um, really comes back to my foundations in, in Agile, um, which you and I have talked about before. And, and, you know, those that are listening may think of Agile as a, you know, project management methodology, um, used in engineering, but in reality, Agile is really about ways of working. I mean, there's a myth out there that it only works in engineering teams because people hear, you know, the ceremonies of Agile being, you know, retrospectives and daily stand-ups and et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, I think everybody should do a retrospective after everything that they do because it's all about, you know, what did we learn? What did... Even what in your personal things, relationships. Even in your, perfect, <laughs> in your personal relationships, yes, right? Because um, it's all about continuous improvement and who doesn't want right. to improve. Um, and so as an Agilist, and I've been an Agilist for many, many years now, um, I was lucky enough in one of the Agile Transformation Retreats to be introduced to this idea of spiral dynamics um, through um, a number of mentors of mine. And it spiral dynamics, which actually was kind of born out of um, research that a professor called Claire Graves in Union College in upstate New York 
had had done research on the experimentation of human systems and how human systems evolve. And um, and he called it something else, um, but it was fundamentally about, um, you know, our level, levels of consciousness as humans and how right. that evolves depending on how we progress or regress, you know, again, depending on our um, life experiences and um, just the natural evolution of things. And kind of there are kind of two pieces to it. One is you know, is there a kind of natural evolution to the human system that typically happens every five years? In other words, where you are now, what you what you are at this very moment will in time evolve as your level of consciousness evolves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, to a large extent, because your experiences will teach you, you know, and you will form new ways of thinking about things as you mature, et cetera, et cetera. But that can also happen through trauma, mm. right? Um, and uh, so anyway, you know, Spiral Dynamics is really all about um, how we think about human systems and, and the evolution of those human systems. So why would somebody like me, who is a software geek that, you know, has worked in companies my whole life, is because we are constantly changing and it is um, in order for us to transform organizations, we must seek to understand and learn and know what makes us as humans tick and what brings us to the next level of our understanding, what yeah. brings us to a level of understanding by which we um, we understand and we become part of what the tipping point is to change or right. whatever that is. Right. And you had said, you know, Spiral Dynamics has lost its traction a little bit. Well, it, the, the person, and I was very honored to be certified by Don Beck, Dr. Mm-hmm. Don Beck, who really took Claire Graves' work mm-hmm. and um, carried the torch of Spiral Dynamics, um, you know, for 30, 40 years after that. Um, and he just passed away in 2017. Um, and I think there are a, a number of people now um, certainly considering as as we look at the complexity of the world and gosh, there's just the backdrop of, of, um, of the world is just in such flux, it would appear all the time that so many of us, in fact, I would probably venture to say that every single human on the planet, even coming out of the pandemic, because it was something that we all shared and to some degree galvanized around because it was, you know, we all drew parallels to it in some form or fashion, have all asked ourselves one question is, you know, A, if it's, you know, in its rawest form, what the hell is going on? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, what the heck am I going to do in it? And how mm. um, how do I be in mm. it, right? Um, and that's where I kind of draw on my experiences as a practitioner of spiral dynamics to try and mm-hmm. to to facilitate that. And and if you look at it as some sort of stage theory, which I, I know there's controversy all about kind of stage theory, but um, if it, I I don't even know what stage theory is, it's just 
having different, are there different stages, different phases oh. to um, the process in terms of the human system? And the one thing I would probably say as I've, you know, I, I think back, you know, 15, 20 years ago as what I called myself, and people have heard me say this, this is another moment of vulnerability, I think, is I would have called myself a transformation strategist and now looking back would have said I was a fraud. Oh. Um, and what do I mean by that? It means that I, and I'm going to be very, just bear with me as I want to be very intentional when I say this. Um, I would go into organizations, whether it was as a consultant or in whatever role I was in, and I would be looking to create some sort of change and recognize that what I was trying to do was difficult, was going to be hard mm. to a large extent because the ecosystem in itself, the system was complex, got a bunch of humans running around with all different value systems. But when they didn't understand me, when they didn't get what I was selling, I would literally go into my office or wherever I was and go, what's wrong with these people? Right. Why are they not getting it? Right. Because I didn't, for a moment, recognize or acknowledge that they were where they were yeah. for a reason. We're all on our own journey. We're all on our own journey. Well, I mean, this brings us right back to spiral dynamics, right? Which is about the consciousness of and the evolution of yeah. of consciousness within organizations. Yeah. Where everyone is on their own journey, yeah. and so you know, part of what I'm so curious about is you know David R. Hawkins's work, Map of Consciousness, right? And the different yes, 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 right? yes. I love that you know that. I love yeah. that you know yeah. that. <laughs> um, and then you know this really kind of witnessing holacracy, witnessing, right. you know, responsive conference, re witnessing the future of work. These are all iterations of what yeah. has come out of spiral dynamics, yeah. I think. Yes. For sure. In different ways, in different, in different. Yes. And, and, and I think, you know, one of the things, and, and if any of your listeners, you know, want to educate themselves a little bit on, on spiral dynamics, what one can see at face value sometimes is that because they're, they can be illustrated as, as stages of consciousness or, or yeah. evolution of thinking, um, which is to, to some degree from an organizational standpoint, inaccurate, because first of all, it's important to recognize that in any ecosystem, there are all different stages of understanding and consciousness going on at any one time. And oftentimes, and, and all, of, all of those stages have different manifestations, right? Some are more collaborative by nature. Some are more order-oriented by nature. It depends where they are. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll, you know, I'll, let's, let's use an example to, to, to just kind of ground it a little bit. If you are working in an organization that has predominantly in its characteristic being um, startup-esque, right? So, you know, you have a product, 
you have iterated on that product, you've come out the other end, you've, you know, that product now has grown legs and you want to scale the product. And, but the getting there, the ideation, the innovation um, of getting to that point was a system in itself that is most likely very, very different to what it is, what the company is when it's matured and now has a portfolio of products and now has a thousand more people. Mm -hmm. And right. right. So, so right. all of these stages of an organization have different characteristics purely by the stage, the level that they're at. Right. Right. Absolutely. You mean you wouldn't, the person that you hire to foundationalize of uh, the part of the the organization might not be the person that you scaled to That's the next right. ten thousand person. That's right. And an example I would use even in um, in you know one of the things that we talk about designing in hybrid right now is you know this question that a lot of companies are asking is should you be in the office or should you be remote or right. what would that look like? And you know one of the things that we say for engineering as an example is if you have a fledgling product or a product that's not quite yet realized its potential, you're still thinking about it, you're still ideating on it, um, then it probably makes sense as you're going through that creative process and, and um, just, you know, bringing people together to collaborate on what it could be, probably makes a lot of sense to be together on a whiteboard and in a room with each other, that's very hard to do on Zoom, right? Totally. If the product is a product that's already been scaled, it's already out in the market, and you're just adding a feature to it, then maybe that's okay to do through Zoom. Yeah. You're at a different stage in the life cycle. I love this. Right? And so the same can be said for, um, you know, in organizations, Think about where your organization, the company that you're working is in right now. What's it going through? What, how is it reacting to the market? Um, how does it manifest in the way you all show up? It is the market in that case has triggered mm -hmm. a set of characteristics within the company. I love this. Right? Whereby this is... behavior has yeah. shifted to exactly. do something. Exactly. And that is a cat catalyzing moment. Right. And we don't often recognize it in those terms. Like your listeners might be like, that's right. Like we are in profitability mode. We are operationalizing everything. There might be somebody else that's like, oh my gosh, I'm in a startup. We're on, you know, our second round and we're in a very, very different place. And those are all okay, but pay attention to what's going on in the system at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Why is the system reacting that way? Why is it responding? That why are those the manifestations of the behavior that are showing up, showing up in that moment? And that's okay. Now, what's really interesting is when you look at an organization that has the complexity of different functions and different things going on, there may be a startup element going on in one function. Uh, exactly. A more mature exactly. thing going on in another function. And that's okay. And how do you as a leader manage all yes. of that? That becomes the key question. That is exactly right. And the first thing is you must first and foremost recognize that that is what's going on Beautiful. in your organization. Because if you're trying to transform this kind of um, one field swoop 
this pain stroke moment yes, across exactly. the organization doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, doesn't mean that you won't all be in service to the same thing, to the whatever the ultimate outcome is. But you have to recognize that there are different, different levels of consciousness, if you will, going on in different levels of the organization, which is perfectly fine. The question then becomes is, how do you help navigate and facilitate that, right, to whatever it is that it needs to get to? What is the trigger or the catalyzing moment? Because what will be, what will be this, what you will do in one does not mean that you will do the same in the other. Exactly. And that is where the question what am I in service of? That's right. Becomes paramount. 100%. That's such a beautiful way of bringing it all together. I want to ask you this question. This, this is really coming up for me in, in such a huge way. In biology, when talking about ecosystems, there is something called the law of requisite variety. And what this means is, the organism in that ecosystem that has the most flexibility survives. Mm, that's brilliant. What comes up for you when I say that? Yeah. Because here, here we're talking about maturity and consciousness. Yeah. So where is there varying levels or where there are varying levels of maturity within my organization, how do I as a leader contend with that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's something that comes up for me all the time because, um, and, and this is why this kind of brings us really full circle because we started down this, this conversation uh, around resiliency and yeah. self-advocacy, nice. right? And um, that's really what I feel part of my mission is to do. I mean, look, ultimately, I am in service as a person as a leader, but really me, Sinead, um, what gets, gets me up every morning is being in service to the creation of any environment that allows for each individual to thrive. And that means different things to different people. What people need, you know, we talk again, another full circle moment when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. the equitable part, the the what is it that someone needs that somebody else doesn't, but to put them on an equal playing field, we make sure that we we understand and um, respond and address what each and every person needs because they are unique. And it's important to do that so that you can help to cultivate and foster that flexibility that you're talking about, that agility mm -hmm. that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and building building that, that's why, you know, when I talked about hybrid at the beginning, it's so funny, um, when we started talking about doing, like, what are our hybrid models going to look like? Everybody got stuck in this hybrid. Mm -hmm. Like it almost became a dirty word, right? Because mm -hmm. everybody was overusing it. Oh, a hybrid, the new way of working, mm -hmm. hybrid, the new normal, hybrid, 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 hybrid. But isn't it at the end of the day about intentional design? 
And if you take the time to intentionally design, then you are considering where the flexibility is yeah. or not, right. where the agility is or not. And by doing that, you then hopefully can recognize the gaps yeah. and lean into those gaps and help. I love this so much. To create that. I love this so much. Last question. Yeah. You know, you talk about if, if only the world were more kind. Mm. How do we get there? How do, how do we make the world more kind? If everyone's on their own journey, if everyone's trying to, you know, be exactly as they are for all the lessons that are in front of them, why we come here as humans, why we have this human experience. Stop listening to win. Say that again. Stop listening to win. W-I-N. Mm -hmm. Stop listening to win, meaning don't be driven by the win. Yeah. Driven, be driven by. When, when I think of the reason, the reason that I say it is because Winning is important, and I, I don't want anybody to think that I don't believe winning is important. I, I like to win. I, I, you know, I, 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 I look to create um, an environment where people can thrive, but also that they feel that they are accomplishing something, that they are feeling yeah. that they are rewarded for the amazing job that they're doing, that they're winning in that. Right. So. I don't want anybody to kind of think that, you know, winning is not important to me. Winning is very much important to me. Um, Your whole career exudes uh, that. It, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but the selfishness that can often be associated with winning, the arrogance, all of the kind of connotations of just you know, we used to, you know, we used to say, oh, I mean, all of us have probably heard this, you know, how many bodies do you leave in the wake of your win, right? And um, I just think there are ways to do it. You know, just take a moment to think about what it is you want to win at, which is fine but design for it. We can still win. We can still achieve. We are hardwired to be satisfied. We are hardwired to yeah. achieve. It yeah. is part of our left hemisphere experience. And we can bring our right hemisphere forward even more by doing it interconnectedly, Yeah, by Love doing that. it collectively, yeah. by really prioritizing communal aspects in organizations. Yes. Yeah. I think that for me is where we're headed. I love that. And I hope that we get there in my lifetime. Yeah. Sinead, I could speak to you for the next 14 hours. <laughs> it is such an amazing honor and pleasure to have had you. This conversation was just spectacular. Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. That was Rajkumari Niyogi and Sinead Condon. Up next, how to build inclusive AI.
with tech ethicist and Inclue founder, Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, original music by Dario Valderrama, production assistance by Tiari Boutet and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in. 